And having a doctor before my name isn't going to make somebody that looks at me in a shop not follow me around the shop, right? And I've recently shaved my head. (laughs) It's not going to stop um, somebody following me around a shop and, and as has happened before, like assume I'm a black man walking around this shop if I'm wearing like a hoodie just to get something real quick. I'm not able to quickly whip out my driver's license, which is a learner's driver's license, so I can't drive. <laughs> and say, actually, can't you see that it says Dr. Simone? Like, they, that is not what's going through their head, is it? Hello, world, and welcome to Her Royal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. Today, we will be chatting with Simone Webb, a PhD researcher currently studying bioinformatics and immunology at Newcastle University. She's one of the co-founders of the upcoming Black and Data Week, which is due to take place between the 16th and the 21st of November. I hope to speak with her today about her journey in STEM as a Black woman, her research, and the invisibility of minoritized groups in STEM, as well as the necessity to create a supportive community. But let's start from the very beginning. Simone, what's your story? I guess when I was up until the age of like 15... I'd mainly thought that I'd actually get into medicine. Um, so that was my big that was my big plan when I was younger. Um, I enjoyed all subjects. I was really into um, English and writing as well. And I wrote loads of poetry and I thought I'd be an author as well at some point. Wait, really? Um, yeah, for oh, sure, for same sure. Same here. Yeah, so so that 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 was my pre-15 life. Yeah. And, but I just sort of lent a little bit more towards science and experimentation and things like that. And from my understanding one of the main things I could do in science in a practical way was be a medic so Mm. it was always just yeah I'll be a doctor I'll be a doctor that's why that's what I see as the possibility for me in science I didn't really understand that you could do research you could do I don't know working within a science NGO or something like that I just thought yeah medic is the way so I sort of had those grand plans up until that age and then I started um, at 15 or 16 realizing you could do other things outside of medicine within STEM mm-hmm. um, and that's when I started you know like going to loads of um, I don't know like uni open days or schemes and things like that and trying to figure stuff out from there and that's when it sort of changed but I actually chose all of my A-levels and my GCSEs and things with the intent of applying to medicine. Okay and do you remember what it was that really opened up your eyes to the hope of doing research or the possibility of it? I think it was, so I I was on sort of Saturday schools at UCL, which is where I did my undergraduate degree mm-hmm. as well later on. Um, and it was there that I met some older black um, students at UCL mm-hmm. that were doing things like masters or PhD projects. And so I was 15, 16, speaking to people maybe 10 years older than me that wow. looked like me. Yeah. Um, you know, describing that they were doing work and in, in STEM that was not medical, um, that was still helping people. And that made me go, okay, I can help people in different ways. Mm-hmm. Like I can see, I can see what I could be. And that was where it then clicked for me. Yeah. But I still went with the medical idea. Like I, I, I saw that and I thought, ah, well, you should have done medicine. You made the wrong choice. <laughs> like I was still like pretty set in my ideas about what was, I don't know, what was the right way to go or not. It was only later, like during my A-levels and things when I realized, okay, I'm doing biology, chemistry, maths, all of these things. And the, the thing I'm really enjoying is biology. Like that's what I actually want to do. In my head, I just thought, no, you're going to do biology at undergrad. You're going to just study biology and something is going to come up, like something will come through. 
pharma companies exist, yes. <laughs> research exists, like you will land somewhere. Um, and so, yeah, I just sort of, I, I didn't really know clearly what the path was going to be at the end of it. And I still kind of don't now, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I was just like, nah, it's okay. You know, I'll figure it out. So I was wondering, because I'm not familiar with bioinformatics, I don't actually know how your research is structured. Mm. What do you do? What is a week in the life for you? So bioinformatics is the side of science and research that I didn't anticipate that those 10 years ago. Um, mm. So when I'd been imagining people in a lab coat doing experiments, I was imagining like wet lab experimentalists. Yes scientists right I didn't realize that they were gathering a massive amount of data that then had to be analyzed by people mm -hmm. behind a computer that were also scientists maybe at the time if you'd asked me I would have said you know they're passing it on to computer scientists or just computer people mm -hmm. um, and I wouldn't have classed them as scientists but they are the people that analyze that data from biological experiments are computer um, computational biologists yes. or bioinformaticians mm -hmm. um, so they're scientists in their own right they work at that sort of interface of analyzing that data but also wanting to understand a little bit about the biology of what they're looking at mm -hmm. um, so so bioinformaticians are on that sort of interdisciplinary interface Ooh, I did like alliteration within there <laughs> that was good <laughs> snap so um <laughs> so 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 because I analyze data from the field of immunology immunology mm -hmm. so how our immune systems work and defend us I'm in both bioinformatics and immunology right. so my research group um is part of the human cell atlas project it's mm -hmm. a massive project like the like the thousand genome project trying to map all of the cells in the human body and my supervisor works sort of heading up the human development cell atlas you know so like when you're a little baby or or pri well prior to that when you're a fetus in your in, in your mom's belly and stuff yeah um so my phd work is specifically looking at um how your blood and immune cells form in your bone marrow while you're growing mm -hmm. and i analyze data to, to understand a little bit more about how our blood and immune cells form like really early in life during the second trimester so in development um, you first start off making stem cells, which then make all of the other cells of your body. Mm -hmm. um, you make them in your yolk sac and then in other small structures. Um, and then it goes on to things like the liver, which is really dominant in making loads of cells during the first trimester. Mm -hmm. Then in the second trimester, it goes into your bone marrow. And then in your bone marrow, stem cells are making loads of blood, blood and immune cells into you know infanthood and, and pediatric life and adult life into like us today as adults most of our blood and immune cells are being replenished in our bone marrow mm -hmm. so even because this idea of development and the formation of blood and immune cells which is called hematopoiesis mm -hmm. this 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 process of hematopoiesis in human development is across time it's across space if you're trying to analyze data to understand this fully you're going to need loads of labs loads of people people that are specialists in loads of different organs right yeah specialists in immunology but maybe there'll be hepatologists looking at the liver as well mm -hmm. or maybe there'll be hematologists looking at blood and understand blood science a lot as well yeah. um but then you'll need the bioinformaticians like me to analyze that data to understand what is actually present mm -hmm. I like that you mentioned the idea of the community, the people that mm. you met at UCL mm. when you were still doing your GCSEs and your A-levels. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted to talk about the supportive communities that you're a part of right now, like yeah. the ACRC and the fact mm. that you have Black and Data Week coming up in November. Remind yeah. us of those dates just to make sure people know when it is. Yeah, so Black and Data Week is an online campaign. So it'll be mainly on Twitter from November the 16th to the 21st. 
Sweet. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. The committee and the group that um, I'm working with to kind of pull this together, they're so understanding and supportive and hardworking. Um, and, it's, and it's part of that thing where you... Where I said, for example, when I was 15 and I saw people older than me doing work and I was like, oh, wow, I can do that. Mm -hmm. I'm still experiencing that now with the Black in Data Week Committee, yes, for example. When, when I'm hearing people say the kind of work that they're doing um, yeah. in industry or outside of academia or even in academia. And I'm like, wow, yeah. you're, you're teaching me so much right now about what could happen. Um, so even just being among those people is, is teaching me so much about what I could do as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really nice group to be a part of. Oh, yeah. Oh, I can certainly imagine. How did you come to be a part of the ACRC? Was that recent? Semi-recent, yeah. So um, around a year ago, um, Leading Roots released a report uh, called mm -hmm. the Broken Pipeline Report. Yep. They essentially did quite a lot of freedom of information requests to different universities mm -hmm. to see um, the PhD students um, that they had funded or that had been funded in their institution um, by UKRI. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess the, the, the proportion of students that were uh, black or um, were and, and, and within that, so were black African, black Caribbean, black mixed or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, and this Leading Roots report, that was so that was a year ago, it showed that only 1.2% of um, the students that were funded by UKRI were black. And wow. out of those, so this is over... Um, uh, a three-year period mm -hmm. um so they so it was 1.2 percent which That's is really really low. devastating yeah um and 30 30 of those so 30 of almost i think 20,000 um students that were funded were mm. black caribbean mm. and so i think it took a lot of people by shock or surprise not necessarily like oh i didn't expect this but like jesus mm -hmm. 30 <laughs> um so whether you expect it, whether whether you genuinely go, oh, no, this can't be right, or whether you go, oh, is a different thing. But it was still a shocking figure to see a year ago. And so mm -hmm. um, I think there was a little bit of a push on Twitter saying, like, who who are these 30? Where are the rest of you? <laughs> I, I don't, I, because so often in academia and higher education, you as a, as a black person or a black woman, you're the only one in the room, or you're yes. one of few in the room, or you're the only one on the floor, or the yeah. institution even, or your department. Um, it can be an isolating environment to be in if you're the only person um, that looks like you in a room. Um, and, and it does sort of lend itself to you you feeling like you, you almost have to represent all of the black diaspora within yourself. Yeah. Like so much there's so much nuance to me and nuance to our people, and I am one. Mm -hmm. um, but whenever anything or a conversation comes up about race, you're the one turned to, or whenever a certain opinion is shared your yeah it's 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 tough to be that to be in that environment um and I think when that report was released there was a big scrabble to sort of be like you know we're in a an isolated environment within our own institutions mm -hmm. where are the rest of us and so um DeShane Murray he was really like pivotal in gathering everybody and saying look we need to we need to speak we need to we need to talk to each other yeah. um and support each other let's 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 all form a sort of central group and a few months after that we sort of christened ourselves acrc so that was um toward the end of last year well yeah. we had well it, it was actually a year ago we had our year anniversary i think it was a week or two ago which was sweet <laughs> yes i did see that on twitter congratulations yeah so we formed and um over lockdown samantha reynolds 
well, Dr. Samantha Reynolds. She's on her second um, doctorate right now. Oh, wow. Good <laughs> um, for her. Yeah, she's amazing. Uh, she, she sort of put, put forward the idea in at the beginning of lockdown in the UK, so in March this year, mm-hmm. that we should meet on Zoom once a week just to get to know each other because even though we'd formed, obviously, you know, life gets busy and it was really difficult to catch everybody face to face. So we maybe caught each other very briefly at Black in Academia events led by Leading Roots again. I think those weekly Zoom meetings that started in March were really good in solidifying our group and getting us to really meet each other and learn about each other and know each other. Um, mm-hmm. And then after George Floyd was murdered in like late May this year, those weekly meetings became so important just in terms of having a space where you didn't have to explain yourself. Yes. You didn't have to explain why you were just tired Mm-hmm. or cry, like crying in front of people's faces on zoom mm-hmm. um you could just sort of be um and during that time the ability to just be around people was it was yeah it was so valuable so so this group is is full of amazing people um that are doing phds in the uk and yeah it's been it's been a definite like a uh, source of solace Mm-hmm. at loads of times so yeah so they're definitely my sort of adopted academic family <laughs> like we are all so far away from each other and you know no one else is in my institute so no one else in ACRC is in Newcastle Uni but you know they they are for sure my academic family yeah I did want to ask about your family are they nearby are they also in Newcastle no, so I, I, um, so I did what I said I would do. I, I, I did my undergraduate in biology at UCL, mm-hmm. which is where I felt most at home because I'd been going there because my school was an outreach school. I'd been going there since I was a, a teenager, so you know it felt a comfortable space to be. Yeah. So I went there. So I was in my hometown of London for my undergrad. I did run away for a little bit. So in the third year of my degree, I went to the University of Queensland in Australia, okay. um, in Brisbane. So that was really nice. Yeah. Um, well, well, really up and down, but <laughs> gen- generally nice. Uh, it was really good to see the coral and to meet loads of nice people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so, so then I came back to my hometown. I lived in East London, Hackney, which was a bit different because I, I grew up in South London as well. Mm, okay. Um, and then it was after my degree finished um, that I then sort of had the capacity to start thinking about what, what was coming next because final year was a bit hectic mm. for loads of reasons. Um, <laughs> okay, reasons that you're you'd like to go into or no? Oh, we can we can for sure. Yeah, it, okay. it's just to do. So so I was I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis in the final year of my degree. Mm. So things were just really. I did not have capacity to be thinking about what comes next. My my main focus at that time was, oh my gosh, I need to finish this degree because I'm a second away from quitting it. Um, mm. I was just like, I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot not do this. Um, mm. So much, so much of myself had been poured into that degree, and I was just at that point where I was like can I do this? Can I even finish this? Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking about what was going to come next was the lowest priority you can imagine. Um, yeah. So it was only when I, I had graduated, I'd gotten my certificate that I then looked into PhDs and things. So that's why I'm in Newcastle now, because I was, um, I was looking into PhDs. There were quite a few up here. My partner was up here at the time as well. Mm-hmm. So it was, it just sort of worked. It sort of just clicked. Um, mm-hmm. And luckily I got um, a, a, a spot 
for a funded PhD in the Hanafa lab. Um, so I was like, yes, this is great. I'll run there. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and it then sort of anchored me because it gave me a bit of stability after that year. Like I said, that was a bit like up and down. Mm, I see. And how have you transitioned into being a little bit further away from family at this point, especially because we're now dealing with the pandemic? So there are multiple yeah. elements going on here for you. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think I have transitioned into, into it. I don't think I've accepted that I'm far from home. Um, okay. <laughs> like, well, so in the first year or two of my degree, right? Um, I was, I was getting trains down to London every month. Mm. So every month I'd come down for a weekend. I'd stay with my sister and my grandma and have a great time. Um, and yeah, see my cats, um, catch up, <laughs> run around uh, Saturday evening trying to meet with loads of different friendship groups for like an hour at a time. No. Which is ridiculous, you know, like everyone knows that when someone comes to London, it's going to be a mess. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just like trying to run around like, oh, I'll meet you for coffee. Oh, I'll meet you for drinks. And I'm like, my stomach's you know, sad with me because I'm giving it like caffeine and then alcohol and then water. And then, then there's loads of food and cheese and... <laughs> back to coffee <laughs> so so yeah I, that was that was a big thing though making sure I came back home and saw my family every month um but obviously with lockdown since March that hasn't that hasn't been the case you know I can't just jump on a train and mm-hmm. and be like yes it, it's fine or it's safe um yeah particularly because because of my condition as well so I take immunosuppressive medication I I, I, mm-hmm. I do uh like two injections every week myself Mm. um to make sure that my immune system isn't going too um I guess too wild on my joints and attacking my joints too much and so because of that um my immune system is suppressed so obviously there's a lot of like anxiety and concern around um heightened risk of getting COVID as well so Mm -hmm. you know I know that my body is not necessarily up for that fight (laughs) I know that black people are more likely to die from this thing Mm -hmm. for an array of causes um, one of which will 100% be racism Mm -hmm. Um, and and so that just sort of means thinking about traveling at this time is just something I can't it's so hard to entertain something like that when you see this massive list of things so it's been really hard to to feel connected because I know that traveling isn't such an easy decision to make for me Mm -hmm. um I did quickly go down for like three days in August um because I was just sort of like at breaking point I was like I need to see my grandma (laughs) (laughs) I need to just hug my grandma um but I I stayed away from her quite a bit actually so I kept on saying I need to hug her and then I got there and I was like oh my gosh I don't feel comfortable hugging her now uh so that was weird but um (laughs) so yeah it hasn't necessarily been the the monthly train trips but um just trying to keep up I was on the phone to my sister quite a bit this morning um so just trying to keep up with all of the technology that you can although the technology that you see often doesn't show you the best things so that's also a tight rope to walk oh please elaborate I'm, I'm curious as in you know the news isn't great consumption for people and for black people in general all the time right, right? so it's just right. like sometimes you know it's technology is a double-edged sword we're in lockdown a lot yeah. of us cannot travel outside freely or without concern and then you turn to your phone and it's supposed to be this beacon of light that allows you to FaceTime with your sister so you can see your cats and your grandma in the background. Okay, that's very specific to me, but (laughs) other people might also want to FaceTime their sister with their cats and their grandma in the background. I'm sure someone someone can relate to that specific situation. I'm sure. 
But you know, you want it you want it to be that. But then yeah. but then maybe you're scrolling on Twitter and then you just see some horrible things um to do with police brutality. And it's like, okay, well I did not need that that visual in my yeah. head right now, you know? Mm. Um that is really hard for me to process right now. Okay, my mood is completely changed right now. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm now thinking quite a lot about police brutality and race. Yes. And then it's just, you know, it's 6.30 on a Wednesday and you just want to relax. But all of these things are being delivered to you instantly by something that is supposed to be making you feel connected and part of a community and not isolated at this time. So technology has been such a double-edged sword for those reasons. And I know, you know, some, some of my friends have gone one way and just completely avoided it. Which obviously mm-hmm. means that the, the isolation is compounded because you're not able to access your friends and your family. Or people have gone the complete other way and sort of just doom scrolling on Twitter, on everything, reading all of the news. And, and in that way as well, it's damaging because you're so traumatised. Yeah. I guess you're traumatised in either way. So it's it's a really difficult thing to balance. Um, but I've I've been trying to keep up with my friends and family like as much as I can through tech but I definitely don't think I'm um like walking that tightrope the best I could be but I don't I don't know who is (laughs) I was gonna say I don't think anyone that I know at least Mm. feels like they are managing it very well everything that you were saying I was nodding vigorously I know you can't see me right now but (laughs) everything is just spot on because I've done that I've gone back and forth and I go okay I'm Mm. not gonna go on Twitter even though I do find a lot of really joyous happy connecting moments on Twitter but there's no disclaimer there's nothing Mm. that says what you're about to and I do have what is it called those settings that prevent Mm. you from seeing really awful things oh yeah but sometimes it's not a video sometimes Mm. it's just someone writing a tweet to inform people of what's been going on yeah and it changes the entire nature of your day yeah yeah it could just be it and it's fine you know outreach you want people to understand the facts even just a simple fact i think i was scrolling on my phone yesterday Mm -hmm. and it said something like oh black women are five times as as likely to 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 die in childbirth or something like that yeah and that's and that's another fact that i was just feeling a little bit bad about sharing with you because that's mm. that's stressful and I hope that doesn't stress out your day but it's just simple things like that like I'm scrolling and I'm seeing that and I go oh, okay yeah okay do I do I do I feel safe right now do, do I feel mm. valued right now do I feel like my life is valued right now do I feel like institutions value my life right now do I feel yeah. safe within my family within planning for a family right now I was not even Oof. thinking about that a minute ago I was reading a paper <laughs> I was on my phone messaging my sister and now my brain is in that frame of mind it's it's tough um yeah oh wow yeah I, I i've come across that same statistic and it really hit me that there mm. was a difference in how black women were treated with relation to medicine and pregnancy specifically mm. because the two biggest superstars of the world serena williams and mm. beyonce both had awful delivery stories like mm. There is a problem here. When mm. people know your name, that doesn't even take away that feeling of, oh, she's overreacting or, mm. oh, we don't believe what she's saying. So how about me? Yeah. Like, yeah, how yeah. how are they going to feel when they yeah. see me? I'm honestly petrified of going to the doctor for that reason, not even just mm. because of the whole um, women dying in childbirth thing. That's mm. one element of it. Mm. But I'm at the point where... I figured out, sorry for kind of tangenting, no, like being no, a no. tangential, unrelated thing, but it's not unrelated, related. though. It's not unrelated. It, it feels 
it feels weird to talk about it, but it is something that I do want to mention just because we ta- we're now talking about the medical space. Mm. I don't go to the doctor until I take my partner with me who is, mm. I call him white passing. I mean, technically he's white, but he's an immigrant from Russia. Mm. So there are a lot of things that he has in common with me. But mm. when we go to the doctor, he's a white man. Mm, so, 100%, yeah, yeah. yeah, when I'm talking about maybe something that's bothering me, they'll belittle it in front of both of us. And then yeah. he'll go, no, it's serious. Like she can't get out of bed for X, Y, Z reasons. And she's in this mm. kind of pain. And then they go, oh, I guess it is serious. Um, Let's go ahead and run some tests. And I'm yeah. just like, it annoys me that I know I have to bring you to my doctor's appointments for that reason. Yeah. yeah, yeah but yeah. we both know it. If I say I'm going to the doctor, he's like, okay, let me make time for it. He knows that that could be a life or death decision for me. 100 they could make a mistake and they could be like well it happens statistic eh, whatever we didn't know what we were looking for we don't yeah know that's the thing the, like. the statistics are of people are people with with people that care for them and, yes. and people that care for other people and had plans you know had, yeah. had things written in their diaries for the week after um and it's so often that our brains are so used to seeing ourselves as okay i'm in i'm just in that statistic mm-hmm. i'm in that i'm i'm, I'm just i am just in that five times as more likely to die in childbirth than I'm always thrust into those statistics in a negative way mm-hmm. um and and it is it, it's it's dehumanizing to always see that you know yeah. what I mean oh or, or maybe sure. or maybe it's or, or maybe it's a realization of of how dehumanized you are in loads of aspects um or how close to death the proximity to death the realization that as a black person so much of what you go through is defined um or is or is affected by your proximity to death so 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 the fact that the global black diaspora was mourning for George Floyd in May mm-hmm. that was us realizing and feeling the fact that we're in close proximity to death in so many structures at so many points in time and and that's why it hurts so much um yeah so much and and it, and it's seeing those stats all the time, and whether I'm in a good frame of mind or 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 a frame of mind that's ready to accept that, that doesn't often matter. It just happens, you know. Yeah, I I had to write that down because that is that was so almost hauntingly worded. Mm. That is so true mm. because it was hard for people to really understand why we were all in mourning. Yeah, yeah, like you're in the UK. You're in the yes. UK. What's that got to do with you? Yes. People didn't understand it. They couldn't mm-hmm. fathom that there was this connection between all of us of could have been me, could have been my brother, could have been anyone. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's that's the first thing. You look at it and go, yeah, that's me. Yes. That's, that's me. That could have been me. That could have been my brother. And it's and it's that thing you mentioned before as well about um uh Serena Williams and Beyoncé having really difficult pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Your, your your status or your socioeconomic status doesn't often protect you in these circumstances. And in a similar way, when it comes to academia, your titles will not protect you. Do you know what I mean? I yes. will hopefully become a doctor in two years' time mm-hmm. or sometime like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and having a doctor before my name isn't going to make uh, somebody that looks at me in a shop not follow me around the shop. Exactly right and i've Mm -hmm. recently shaved my head (laughs) it's not going to stop um somebody following me around a shop and and as has happened before like assume i'm a black man walking around this shop Mm -hmm. if i'm wearing like a hoodie just to get something real quick 
Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? That's not protecting me. I'm not able to quickly whip out my driver's license, which is a learner's driver's license, so I can't drive. <laughs> <laughs> and say, actually, can't you see that it says Dr. Simone? Like they mm-hmm. that is not what's going through their head, is it? And and, and it's and it's and it's also the realization that it's not just uh, I guess ra- racism is not like these evil bogeymen and 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 racist acts done by specific individuals that are bad and so therefore everyone is absolved of responsibility because they don't think in a super racist or biased way like mm-hmm. it's about the structures as well so so having having that black person coming and interview and then having those things in your head that are making you act a certain way toward this candidate um, mm-hmm. and then developing your whole higher education institution around those biases um mm-hmm. and then everyone just not taking responsibility and saying well i'm not racist well i lead a re- well i'm i lead a research group but i'm not racist i just haven't had good candidates come around how have you written your job application how have mm-hmm. you written it what 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 have you asked for have you asked for that first class degree have you mm-hmm. considered the fact that there's i think it's like a 30 percent point difference between um black and white um students getting a first in higher education so there is a difference and if you Mm -hmm. don't think that difference is some you know inherent thing to do with their blackness and them being not as smart or intelligent then you're saying that there's something wrong with the scoring system Mm -hmm. and then you're saying okay there is a flawed scoring system i'm going to use this scoring system to get people in in a flawed manner but it seems like it's impartial it seems like all i'm asking for is smart students all i'm asking for is a first that's not racist (laughs) fine i'm not saying that you actually are actively doing a racist act by putting that into your job application but i'm just saying a lot of things that are set up in a structure like that where you think you're being Un, you know you're not, you're you're being unbiased and you're not a racist individual could be doing things that are disproportionately affecting people mm-hmm. um or disproportionately assigning opportunities or access to opportunities and that's mm-hmm. something that people need to check as well mm-hmm. it's not about these bogeymen it's not about these bad people in the shop that are viewing me in a certain way it's mm-hmm. it's you know complex very much so and i don't think probably until this year people realized how complex it in fact was. And it really hurt me recently when I had pointed out that at the Dementia Research Institute where I was working previously, the vast majority of people who are group leaders were Mm. white men. Mm. And I said, oh, it's kind of sad because it's a very new institute. So you think they at least would be close to parity on the man-woman line, Mm. but also there would be a lot more racial diversity, ethnic diversity, Mm -hmm. cultural diversity. Mm -hmm. And someone that I looked up to said, well, I mean, first of all, don't you think they just pick the best people for the job? Mm -hmm. And if the people were available, I'm sure they'd get chosen, Mm -hmm. like you were just saying. And it frustrated Mm -hmm. me so much. And I, I, like, my voice was gone. I was speechless. I couldn't even say anything. I wish I came Mm -hmm. up with a good, strong, Mm -hmm. logical argument, like the one Mm -hmm. that you just presented. But I was almost hurt that mm-hmm. someone couldn't see the inequalities and yeah. the structural, I don't want to say brokenness, because mm. it was built that way and it works that way. It's not yeah. broken. It's functioning for a specific purpose. And also when it's like, well, if, if it's just the best person for the job, mm-hmm. just on a sort of fundamental level of that phrase, it's like, are you, 
is is that phrase saying that by thinking about a diversity you're lowering standards yeah and what are you and what are your standards so if you're saying it's just the best person for the job yeah why is why is that defending a white person taking that space so mm-hmm. is that you saying do you know what i mean it's just like what are you actually actually saying <laughs> yes and then i thought maybe i was looking into it i thought maybe i'm just a little too sensitive and mm. it's been a tough year mm. but i think my response was valid like me being taken aback by that statement mm-hmm. really I, I, like I, i'm okay with it now mm-hmm. <laughs> initially i was like okay you need to calm down on the sensitivity but no i think what that person that again i looked up to was saying was obviously people who are more diverse whatever mm. that term means are not meeting our standards and yeah. we're not like you said we're not going to lower our standards for people just so that it makes people happy and in fact yeah. that's what she followed up with saying she said um well i don't think quotas should exist because then everyone is going to think that you're there only because you were like gifted the spot which i don't think is the case but even but it but also i feel like that's such a false pardon like point to make like oh then people will think this it's like what do you realize how much I deal with people thinking about me already? Is that seriously um is that Thank is that you. seriously like your biggest <laughs> concern? You're so worried for me and my realization of what people think about me. Is that seriously the biggest the biggest barrier in this whole situation is that you're worried that I'll be upset about how people view me. Yep. Like like I've heard how people view me in front of my face, behind my back, like that's the least of my worries right now. Yeah. <laughs> That's oh god part of it that's that's so small like do you think i'm actually gonna be hurt stop it please don't worry about me 